Okay. Uh, we've been going through the book of Ephesians and very slowly. Um, and we're in Ephesians 4. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 4.25 today, so you can turn there if you want to. Um, I, uh, if you remember, if you were here previous, I didn't share last week. We had a guest speaker, Rodrigo, from Brazil. Um, and uh, I, um, I was talking to, the two weeks previous to that, I was talking about, uh, I was kind of introducing this section of Ephesians that we're moving into. We kind of reviewed the first four chapters to a great uh, to a great degree, and looked at all the realities that Paul had declared were finished in Christ, uh, the reality of our death with Him and being raised with Him and made alive with Him, raised with Him, seated with Him and uh, in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we talked of uh, how the Spirit of God is then the one who makes that real, makes that real in our hearts and shows us what He has done and shows us where we are and what is now uh, the truth for for those of us who are in Christ, and and I was talking about how we then come to an area of Scripture, a portion of Scripture that, uh, and almost all of the epistles of Paul have have a, have a period at the end of the letters where most Christians that I know uh, kind of call them the do's and don'ts. Uh, New Testament instruction is what I was calling the. Understanding New Testament instruction is what I was calling the messages, but they're they're usually verses that we we hugely misunderstand because we don't understand the foundation upon which they're sitting. Because we don't understand the foundation of the finished work of God in Christ, that to us is kind of like theology that maybe we need to study or something. But but we think that Paul gets down to the nitty gritty of Christianity and these these end um, uh, passages, starting kind of like here in Ephesians four twenty five. Uh, where he really tells us what to do and what not to do, and and uh, and we we massively misunderstand those um, those uh, verses primarily because we don't have a true uh, God-given understanding of of what what He has finished and how the how the gospel works in our soul. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Um, so if you miss those, if you miss those uh, teachings, you can always grab. We have the CDs for for free upstairs in the bookstore. You can grab those if you um, if you missed it. But uh, let me just say categor- categorically here that that those verses are not to be understood as a list of do's and don'ts or or rules and regulations for how to live acceptably before God. They are instructional in nature. These kind of scriptures. They're certainly. Uh, instructional, but they're not Paul's description of how to please God in the flesh or how to live acceptably before Him. You know, if that was even possible, if that kind of thing was even possible, God would never have had to send Christ. You understand that? If, if man could live in such a way that uh, was acceptable to God, he could have. If he did send Christ, he certainly would have, wouldn't have had to send him to die and to give his life as the life of his body. He could have just come and given us some rules and, and teachings and instructions. He didn't have to actually come and, and put away the first man and establish the second. He didn't have to come and 
bring judgment and an end to all that fell short and give us the life of God and the soul of man that we could abide in that. That wouldn't have been necessary if there was anything in the flesh that was pleasing to God. The only life acceptable to God is the life of His Son. And that is why the love of God has given you Christ Himself as the very life of your soul if you are born of His Spirit. So we need to... We need to understand what Paul is doing in these types of instructional passages. Um, and that's kind of what we were trying to do the last couple of weeks. What are these, these do's and don'ts, or whatever we call them? Why is there usually a section near the end of Paul's letters that have to do with uh, instructional things? Um, I'm just going to say... A couple things by way of reminder, just so that we're kind of on the same page before we get into uh, verse 25. Uh, but I want to spend most of our time actually on verse 25 this week. If you remember, I kind of divided up the so-called do's and don'ts sayings into three different categories. Uh, three slightly different things that Paul is trying to say through verses like these. And again, I don't think that Paul had them in his mind divided up in these three categories. I think Paul just spoke the truth as he saw it. But, but for us who are so accustomed to misunderstanding these things, for us who are so accustomed to applying the wrong verses to the wrong man, uh, for, for us, I've kind of divided them into these three categories so that it's helpful to understand these kind of scriptures in a way that, I, that we're not completely removing them from the foundation upon which they're built. The first category of so-called do's and don'ts were the things that are the natural effect or consequence of putting off one man, putting off Adam together with his deeds, putting off the old man together with his lusts, putting off that man and putting on another who is Christ himself. And we spent a lot of time looking at that. Growing up in Christ, as Paul has just told us about in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. We are learning Him as the, we are, we are hearing Him and learning Him and being taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. That we are putting off the old man and being renewed in the spirit of our mind and putting on the new. That's, that's what leads up to verse 25. But, but, but that involves putting off from us what the cross has put away. Putting off the old man together, as we looked at uh, several places in Colossians and Galatians. Putting off the old man together with his lusts and deeds. So growing up in Christ is where the spirit of our mind is renewed in such a way that the man that God has rejected, the kind, the seed, the nature, the natural man, is circumcised from our soul, even as he has been put away from the sight of God. And the man that God has accepted... Christ, the risen Lord who is the life of his body, that man is established in us. That man is put on. Christ himself is put on. Christ is formed in us. Not our attempt to act like Jesus. Now, that's not what this is about. Not our attempt to learn what he said and do what he did. Now, see, that's, that's called religion. That's hopeless. Christianity is Christ. Christianity is Christ himself living in you, formed in you, glorified in you. The putting off of one man and all that is part of that man. And the putting on of another. And that life, that seed, that kind, that nature being formed in you. And this 
putting on and putting off business is it's necessarily and naturally going to involve putting off things that aren't from the seed of Christ and putting on things that are the fruits of his nature. And that's what Paul gets into here in, in verse 25, which we'll get to. But I've said it before, if you kill a tree at the root, you should expect that the leaves and the fruits on the tree are going to wither and fall away. You should expect that there's going to be a putting off of the things that the axe has already killed. And so you're going to find Paul saying things like we find in our verse today, putting off the old, being renewed in the spirit of your mind, putting on the new, therefore putting away the lie or putting away lying, as it says, speak the truth to one another because you are members of one another. But can you see here that Paul's not giving you a list of expected behavioral exercises? Paul is describing what knowing Christ should be working in the souls of those who see him. In other words, if the cross has put away Adam, then knowing the truth should bring about the end of that man's fruits. If the cross has established Christ as the life of your soul, then knowing the truth should bring about the increase of his fruits. But see, the change in behavior is the byproduct of knowing God's finished work and experiencing God's finished work. It's not what you're supposed to be doing for him. It's what he's supposed to be working in you. And that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4, 25. But before I jump into that, let me just, uh, let me just br- briefly mention the two other categories. Uh, there are also some scriptures where Paul tells believers um, to, you could say that this, this category could be called uh, being a wise steward of your earthen vessel, being a wise steward of your body. In other words, you could, you could say he's admonishing uh, believers to make decisions in the earth that are conducive, conducive to abiding in the heavens. Make, make decisions in the flesh while you're still in the body that are conducive to walking in the spirit. Um, and, and those are scriptures that you'll see, like some examples, flee from immorality which wages war against your soul, or fix your eyes above, not on things which are on the earth, or do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, or do not be unequally yoked to uh, unbelievers. Th- those kinds of verses. Those aren't, again, these aren't, this isn't a New Testament law. These aren't seven steps to being a good Christian, or, or three keys to finding out God's purpose for your life. That's not what is going on here. These are choices in the earth that will help keep our souls abiding in Him. These are issues of wise stewardship of our bodies, our earthen tents, which are, which are passing away as we, as we speak. So that's the second category. And the third is uh, instructional passages that have to do with roles and relationships, roles that God has established in family and government, etc., and I explained some of that last time I shared. I'm not going to get into that a whole lot this week because we're going to spend a lot of time looking at that in Ephesians chapter 5. That's a lot of what Ephesians chapter 5 is about. Uh, but these are the kind of the three main categories uh, of, of what Christians most often misinterpret to be uh, works religion. Do's and don'ts to please Jesus. Rules for righteousness or that kind of thing. They simply are... 
these kinds of verses are simply not what the natural mind originally assumes them to be. But, again, apart from the foundational reality of the cross working in our heart through the revealing of Christ himself, through seeing and knowing and understanding and abiding in Christ as our very life, that's how we're going to interpret these scriptures. We're going to flip, as I said before, flip to the parts of the Bible that seem to make sense and apply these kind of scriptures in the wrong way and to the wrong man. So, let's go back to uh, Ephesians 4.25 now. And I want to just read it. It says, it says uh, literally, Therefore, putting off the false. And most translations say something like putting away lying. Um, and I, I don't have a, a real problem with that translation, except that we understand what, li- what, what the lying is that he's talking about. And we'll, we'll mention that here in a second. But putting off the false, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Um, I was thinking that sometimes as we've gone through this study together, it's amazed me how um, at certain times where we've gotten to a specific verse to, to talk about together on Sundays, it's, a, it's, it's, at a, it's at a very specific time in my life or in the life of this body that I think is it's, uh, perfect timing, perfect timing. That's, um, that's kind of what I, I feel about this verse today. It just so happens that right now there seems to be an incredibly relevant uh, need in my heart to understand what it means to put off the false and speak the truth to one another because we're members of one another. So why does Paul say this? Why, you know... Why does Paul have to say something so obvious? If we if we interpret this as just stop lying, you know, why does Paul why does Paul have to tell the body of Christ to to uh, <clears throat> I guess what I'm saying isn't it just basic courtesy to, even in natural relationships? Why does he why does he have to tell the church to stop lying and speak the truth? Let me answer that question in, with two statements. First of all, because the lie and lying to one another is a much bigger reality than we could ever imagine. It's much easier to do that than we ever would imagine. And secondly, because whether we realize it or not, we are so often speaking lies to one another. When Paul tells them to stop lying or to put off the lie or put off the false, he's not talking about fibbing. He's not talking about making up stories or exaggerating or misrepresenting people or lying on the witness stand. That stuff should go without saying, and I'm sure it does. Paul is talking about putting away a whole world of thought and a whole world of reality and understanding that no longer applies to you and no longer defines you because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What is this false that he mentions? What is, what is the false? What is the lie? What is lying? I believe that, that the lying that Paul's referencing here is the way that Christians continue to relate to one another according to a man that God has put away. A man who is the lie. 
Lying is when we speak to one another according to a man, according to a realm, according to a reality that is no longer what and where we are. In a word, lying, according to Paul here, is when our relationship with one another keeps alive what God has called dead. When it treats as relevant what God has buried. And when it isn't according to what God has called life. That's lying. That's relating to one another in falsehood. For you and I, lying is what we quite naturally do with one another when we don't know the truth of God's finished work in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says this, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all have died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on we know no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what I'm saying is that if in him all things have become new, lying is what we do when we relate to one another in what is old. If in him we have come to life, lying is when we speak according to that which is dead. If in him God's word, the living word, defines all things, lying is when our words are not out from his word. And if that's hard for you to understand right now, I just, I just put that before you and ask you to give it time and to give, give, give it some attention. Here's a little rabbit trail. I've been, I'm beginning to realize that I put too much effort into trying to say things perfectly. Lord's been dealing with me on that. I spend a lot of time trying to say things just the right way when the Spirit of God has to make it real in your heart anyway. There's a place for trying to make our words line up as close as possible with the truth. And that's good. It's good to try to make our words line up as possible with the truth. But then there's another place where we, and, 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 I'm, and I'm most specifically speaking to me right now, try to say it so clearly that even the natural mind can be tricked into thinking that it's seeing Christ. And I, I'm guilty of that. I'm not feeling condemned about it, so don't feel sorry for me. I just know that it's true. <laughs> you know, there was a time when Jesus was, uh, you know, he, he was got done handing out fish and, and bread that he'd multiplied in the... Uh, and there's this huge crowd around him, and, 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 and he says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. And, and, and he got a bunch of blank stares, you know. He was asked to explain himself. So he said, okay, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then when they all started walking away, he just turned to his 12 and said, are you guys leaving too? Jesus knew something that day that for some reason, has taken me a long time to learn. He understood this. He understood that a heart to know the Lord will find him. If anyone knocks, the door will be open. If anyone seeks, he will find. 
And on the other hand, a heart that doesn't want the Lord cannot be helped. Not even if God Almighty sends His Son, opens the door and says, Come. That's just something I've been thinking about. Anyway, I'm trying to tell you that lying is more than telling an exaggerated fishing story. Lying to one another in the body of Christ is when we bring the lie into the Lord's body. And we try to relate in and as Christ's body according to that man, according to the man who is the lie, according to that mind. You see, we have no right. We have no right to bring that man into Christ. We have no right to bring his mind, his ideas. I'm talking about the natural man here. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about your ideas. I'm talking about my ideas. We have no right to bring his mind, his ideas, his fleshly values and reasoning into God's finished work. And when we do, and when we suppose that there is something that's actually there worth saying, something that is there that's worth keeping, something that is there that is true and, and we can relate in it, then we're lying to one another. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're lying to one another. We may be doing it with all the greatest intentions, whatever that means, but we're contradicting what God has done and it's a lie. And you and I who have come to live in the one who calls himself the truth must come to know that truth and speak the truth to one another as it is in him. Everything else is part of the lie. You see, the truth is such a wonderful thing, but it's, but it's also a very severe thing. The truth, as it is in Christ, is what God knows to be real. God, you've heard me say before, God doesn't have opinions. You and I can't change the truth. We can't change it or affect it or alter it in any way or to any degree. That puts the fear of the Lord in my heart because what God knows to be real stands as His finished work. It stands as this immovable mountain of, of, of objective reality. And it will never change. Not for you. Not for me. Not for anything or anyone. It is offered to everyone, but it's offered already finished. It's offered already established. I have already set my king upon my holy hill. Why do the nations rage in vain and the people plot a vain thing? I have already set my king. You see? It's offered and given and poured out upon every single human being who desires to know it. It's given to every man, woman, and child who will acknowledge their need of it and who will realize that they, by nature, are contradictory to it. But it never bends, it never varies, and it never moves. There's really only one question that you and I have to decide. There's only one question that exists when you're standing, staring at that immovable mountain of God's truth. And that question is not, what do you want to believe in? That question is, do you want to know what God calls truth? Do you want to participate in what is true? Or do you want to continue on in any other idea because every other idea is a lie. 
And we may not realize that we do that, but you and I are always trying to bring our ideas into the truth and mix it all together. We're always trying to bring the things that we think we've learned about God, <coughs> things that we've learned about life, things that we learned about purpose. We try to bring it all into the person who is the truth and we set it all up there like, like some familiar book on our nightstand. Oh, it's been here so long, I just am so used to it. We bring the lie into the truth and we try to relate to one another as though it has always been there. And I suppose it has always been there in the darkness of our unrenewed mind. But to, to Christ, to Him who, who, who is named the truth, to Him it's a foreign particle, it's an alien life form. It's, it's extraneous and irrelevant and contrary reality to the one in whom we now dwell. It's not part of the truth because it didn't come out from the truth. Even if it's a fact, the truth is an experience of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. So we are now members of one another. We are joined to one another by sharing one life. We share one life and that life is named the truth. But here we go dragging our ideas into Him. Dragging in our ideas of righteousness. Dragging our ideas of purpose. Dragging our ideas of love and ministry and church. Bring them all into Christ. You know, go ahead. There's plenty of room in here for everybody's idea. You know, if you don't line up with my idea, there's a church down the road that I'm sure will have your idea. We'll find one. And there's, there's, there's millions of ways to, to, to justify and dignify our, our lives, our ideas. There's so many. Job. Job was a man who had a lot of ideas about God. Job had amassed quite an amazing collection of sayings, and proverbs and lessons, things that he learned <clears throat> about the Lord, things that he knew to be the truth. And he put them all together in some really beautiful lyrics. I mean, you could make some nice songs out of those verses in Job. He justified himself before God. And he really knew nothing of himself or his words that, that were contrary to God. He was quite innocent in his own eyes. And I'm not saying that he, he was innocent with malicious intent. He, I, I, I'm sure that Job absolutely believed in his heart that what he was saying was true. I don't doubt that. I mean, it, it seems pretty obvious that, 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 that uh, everything of his life um, seemed to be in complete... Uh, correlation to his, his beliefs about God. I mean, he had so many life experiences that seemed to back, to back it up and so many years of blessing and so much that pointed to say that this must be God and this must be God's blessing. This must be why God does this and this must be why God's doing that. Job was a man who spoke and lived as though he knew the truth. But what I'm trying to say is that something happened what happened to Job? Well, I was struck with this last week when Rod was sharing. I just read that verse from the book of Job. Something happened to Job that changed everything in a second. What happened? Job saw the person who calls himself the truth. And here's what he says. Job 42.1 Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know 
that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You have asked, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said to me, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. If only Job would have come to this disposition before he spent 40 chapters explaining what he thought he knew. If only we would come to this disposition before we spend 40 years living what we think we know. What I'm trying to say, I guess I'm trying to say that part of being renewed in the spirit of our mind, putting off the old, putting on the new, is going to dramatically involve how we relate to one another. It's going to get down to that eventually. I'm not talking about trying to be nice or trying to be tolerant or trying to do anything. I'm not talking about you trying to do anything. I'm talking about the person, place, and state of being of one man ceasing to be the reality in which we relate to one another. Why? Because for you and I who have been born of God's Spirit, it's a lie. Everything about that man for you is a lie. Jason, give me some examples. Well, I always get in trouble when I give examples. That's a, it's a lot safer just to let the Spirit make application. But I'll say a couple things. <laughs> it would be a lie for me to preach to you anything other than I've seen in the light of Christ appearing. It would be a lie. It would be a lie to bring my good Christian ideas into the Lord's body, my ideas about scriptures, my opinions. Where I am presenting my opinions and my ideas to you about Christ, I am lying to you. Perhaps not intentionally, but I have seen that my ideas about God have no place in His church. The church is the body of Christ where His mind defines all things. And so I have a deep invested interest in always being wrong so that I can see Him who is right and I can speak to you out from that view. And I'm not pretending that I do that well or that I always have something to say. But that's how I understand this to work. Everything other than Christ's mind working in Christ's body is part of the lie. Another example. It would be a lie for me to encourage you in anything that I can tell has no place in Him. No matter how much you want to hear it or think you need to hear it. I would be lying to you if I sought to comfort you in anything other than the truth as it is in Christ. 
that's hard for some of us to hear. I've had people come to me. I've had people sit down with me needing to hear a word, a comforting word, a specific word of promise or a specific word of hope, a word from the Lord. The problem is that sometimes when that happens, that specific word that they are wanting doesn't exist in Christ as far as I've ever seen. And so I can't give it. It is a lie to comfort you apart from the truth. It is a lie to present to you a solution that is separated from Christ. See, this is where I start. Yeah. It would be a lie for me to pretend that a good relationship with you in the flesh is the same thing as fellowship. (coughs) Fellowship is the sharing of Christ. I'll have a relationship with you that is entirely natural if that's what you want, but I won't call it fellowship. You get the point. Paul says that we are putting off the old, being renewed in the spirit of our mind and putting on the new. And that is having its, its, its very natural effect in us. It, it, if it's a genuine work of the spirit through the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ as the life of our soul, then there is an unstoppable consequence that begins to happen in us. So what, what is that consequence? Well, we're, we're beginning to stop relating to one another according to what once was true of us, what once was real, what used to be what and where and who we are. And we are beginning to relate to one another according to an entirely new universe of reality. We're beginning to relate to one another and speak to one another according to the truth as it is in Christ. Now, that's not the same thing as saying the truth as it is for us who are Christians. The truth as it is in Christ is different. The truth as it is in Christ, it's a a world of reality and substance that is inaccessible to the natural man or to the natural mind. It is an experience of resurrected life, the life of God that is shared by by His corporate body. One life in many. Not many acting like one life. One life being formed in many. This is a world into which natural eye cannot look and natural minds cannot imagine. And yet it is the world of truth that begins to be the very nature and reality and place and person and time of what we share with each other. And speaking truth will be according to that. Sharing Christ, sharing Christ, speaking the truth as it is in Christ, it's so much more than sharing beliefs and emotions and books and ideas. Sharing Christ is sharing the resurrected life of the Son of God who is seen by and experienced in the redeemed souls of those who have been joined to Him, those who are growing in faith. Why does Paul say to speak the truth to one another? Because we are now members of one another. Because we share one life. Because for us who are in Him, He is the truth of what we share. Because He is the definition and the understanding and the word that we need to hear from one another. And anything else we drag in there from the wrong man and the wrong mind is not helping anyone, regardless how good it tickles our ears and makes us feel warm fuzzies. You can't bring your ideas into His mind and really think that it's helping anybody. Because it's not. Long ago in the Old Covenant, God commanded something that man could not do. Uh, well, 
we know that the law was precisely that. The law was God's expectation that described Christ, but it ended up condemning man. I mean, it was, it was God's righteous, righteous demands on display in a book. The righteousness of God commanded upon men in the, in the law of the letter, and, and they could not do it. The new covenant is the righteousness of God put within man in the law of the Spirit. We understand that. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And now he is in us what we could never, what could never come by us. Now he reveals in us who we could never be. Understand? Well, one of those commandments that we could not do went like this. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Who in the flesh could ever really do that? I mean, how, how can the natural man who is entirely preoccupied and motivated by self-love actually love another like himself? How could that actually happen in the flesh? Well, it can't. Just like everything else in, in that covenant, the commandment upon the flesh pointed to a fulfillment that was coming in Christ. It proved to be an impossibility for the old man, but it became an actual experience in the new man. That's how that, the two covenants work. That's why Paul calls the Old Covenant a ministry of condemnation and a ministry of death. It showed Adam his lack. It showed Adam his frailty and his failure. And the New Covenant is a second man, a new man in whom we are made to dwell and who lives and works in us according to his spirit and brings into realization and fulfillment everything promised in the Old. Well, enough on that. What I'm talking about here is this particular law. This particular law to love your neighbor as yourself because it has everything to do with Ephesians 4, 4.25 here. Man could not love his neighbor as himself until through baptism into Christ. Now hear me here. Man could not do that until man actually became a part of his neighbor. Man could not love another's life until his, as his own until man shared the same life with his neighbor. Can you hear that? So Paul writes in Romans 12, 5, So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians six seventeen. But we, But he who is joined to the Lord has become one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Uh, he's praying that there would be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored... All the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. This isn't a suggestion for how we're supposed to picture one another. This is an established fact of the resurrection. This is the truth and we do not see it. We are members of one life. I'm not talking about we're dissolving into the nothingness of God. I'm talking about each individual soul is a partaker of the life-giving spirit. The spirit that became our life in the resurrection. And to love the body of Christ is to lay down our own individual independent life and to live as one. To live as his body. To lay down our own ideas about the body of Christ and to learn his idea. His mind. To put away the lie, the ideas of that independent man that you once were and to put on the truth and to speak the truth as it now is in him, as it now is in the one new man of Ephesians 2. To relate to one another according to the whole new world, the whole new universe of life and reality and substance and truth that is Christ himself. 
Anything less than that, is, this is what I'm trying to say, anything less than that is lying to one another. Anything less than his needs are not the needs of the body. Anything less than his purpose is not the purpose of this body. You don't bring your own purposes into him and call it the purpose of the body. We don't bring our own individual needs into Christ and call that the needs of the body. See, that's all part of the lie. And I'm not saying we overlook one another's natural needs. Acts chapter 6 talks about those things need to be attended to. But we do not define the needs of the body of Christ by ourselves. We come to know Him and see Him and participate in His heart, His mind, His nature. And the needs of His body become worked into our heart. They become the, they become, we become aware of them in our heart. We participate in His needs for His body. I hope you can hear what I'm saying. So this verse is not saying that because we are now Christians, we should stop fibbing and start telling the truth because now we have the same beliefs. That's not what it's saying. Or, now God expects something more from you because your sins are forgiven. This verse is saying that the cross has severed the Adamic man from our soul and therefore with the coming of light we should cease relating to one another according to the things, the ideas, the purposes, the agendas that are not part of Christ. We've been baptized into one death. We've been made to drink of one spirit. We have been shown one light. We are growing up in one sun. And therefore, only the truth as it is in that Son is what we are truly needing to share with one another. Amen. Let's uh, pray.